0: Hey, everybody. It's another short Monday show, and this time it's actually on Monday, so that's a mitzvah. I'll get into it very quickly here, but first I wanted to let you know that tackling a history show takes sitting down and working, regular, in the same place for a long time. And unfortunately, I've been pretty much on the move since May. But I'm here for the duration now, and I think I can, and I'm going to try to have the rest of the Iran episodes written and coming out to you by the middle of October. And that's without skipping a Monday show or the Patreon news shows. So, huge apologies for the delay, and I'm as upset about it as you are. And I hope that you've been digging the shorter episodes in the meantime. And Vietnam will be hot on the heels of the last Iran episodes. Share, rate, tell your friends about the show, and since I've been hearing this recently, probably definitely start them explicitly on the history shows if they lean conservative. I try to keep those ones tight, politically, but you and I both know that these short ones are going to rub somebody or other the wrong way pretty much every week. The last thing is that everything is bad and it's only getting worse, guys. Lots of disasters are going on, and while the one I'm personally pulling for is here in Mexico, and there will be links to ways that you can help in the show notes, probably try to find it in your big SFD hearts to give or volunteer for one or another of them. All right. I'm John Coombs. We're talking about the State Department, and this is Safe for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to. Yes, our progress has been uneven. The work of democracy has always been hard, it's always been contentious. Sometimes it's been bloody. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one... No matter where he lives, or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. I want to talk to you folks about the State Department. I've been thinking about doing a show on this topic for months, and some or most of you can probably imagine why. Rex Tillerson, the current Secretary of State. Tillerson is looking in the 2018 budget to cut the State Department by one-third, but the mismanagement over there goes way deeper than just budget cuts. By the middle of this past summer, Rex Tillerson had nominated candidates for only two of 22 different Assistant Secretary positions, Assistant secretaries are the next step down from the secretary himself, and they run the major regional desks and management offices for the entire department. Instead of the normal structure, Tillerson has been relying on his chief of staff and his head of policy planning, who are, understandably, having trouble trying to run the entire world for him. According to the Center for a New American Security, acting assistant secretaries have taken up the responsibilities of the empty posts. However, quote, They have little access to Tillerson, and when they interact with their foreign counterparts, it is clear that they have no mandate or influence on U.S. foreign policy, unquote. Even the National Review, the mouthpiece of the conservative establishment, is unhappy about what's going on. Quote, the State Department's core is being gutted. Tillerson is running Foggy Bottom the way a corporate raider might take over a company, firing half of its workforce, repurposing its original mission, scaling back its operations across the globe offices are being shuttered while ambassadorial, assistant secretary, and undersecretary posts remain unfulfilled, unquote. Julia Yaffe of The Atlantic took a trip through state earlier on and talked to diplomats in the halls. Quote, they really want to blow this place up, one official told her. I don't think this administration thinks the State Department needs to exist. They think Jared Kushner can do everything. It's reminiscent of the developing countries where I've served. The family rules everything, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs knows nothing, unquote. Another reporter, Max Bergman, wrote for Politico that State had become, quote, a dying organization. The building is being run by a tiny clique of ideologues who know nothing about the department, but have insulated themselves from the people who do. Tillerson and his isolated and inexperienced cadres are going about reorganizing the department based on little more than gut feeling, unquote. Even James Mad Dog Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, has said, quote, If you don't fund the State Department fully, then I need to buy more ammunition, ultimately." All of these actions, on Tillerson's part, have been characterized by the administration as shrinking or quote-unquote streamlining the department. And while State is in fact a large bureaucracy, doing what Tillerson is doing diminishes and weakens the role that it's meant to play in the government. To get into exactly why, we've got to talk about how the executive branch works, and how State fits into that structure. So the president sits at the top of a very large pyramid, and he has his own staff there in the White House. But the people who sit under him in the hierarchy are the cabinet heads. These are the men and women that run the chief executive's domain. Defense, justice, interior, agriculture, etc., etc. The apparatus of government that executes the president's will and administers services to the public. These agencies serve to implement policy top-down. When Donald Trump comes up with an education plan, He does it in collaboration with the Department of Education, and whichever other stakeholders are involved. And when it's ready, he hands it over to Betsy DeVos, whose job is to execute it. But those agencies also serve to keep past policies running. They have an inertia of their own. Every new president, for example, doesn't try to reinvent housing and urban development when he comes into office. And those agencies also serve to gather information bottom-up. It's not just the census. Virtually all of the cabinet departments also serve as intelligence gathering operations that investigate the myriad aspects of life in the United States. From how many cases of Zico we've seen in the South, to the state of inner city property values, to how farm subsidies and new strains of corn are working out for growers in Kansas. I can understand how small government folks could find all of that a little sinister, but as that information gets turned into white papers and memos, distilled and filtered with each step upwards through the bureaucracy, What it does is allow the president to govern. When POTUS wants to make a decision or implement a policy, he can turn to a cabinet head and have that great wealth of information at his fingertips. And when the president looks abroad, he has many fewer places to turn. For the most part, and on the civilian side, it's the State Department. And in somewhat smaller and more particular and more bellicose roles, it's the military and the intelligence agencies, some of which, like the DIA, work with or for the military, and some of which, like the CIA, operate on their own. Because its operations are so much more extensive and its missions so much more broad than those of the military or the alphabet agencies, state ends up playing the role of all of the cabinet departments for all of the rest of the world. But what does that actually mean in practice? Well, First, despite those other places having intelligence in their names, state does the vast majority of quote-unquote intelligence gathering for the USA abroad. I went to the School of Foreign Service, and although in part because of what I've said on this podcast, that career is looking less and less likely for me, I've got several friends who went off and became FSOs, Foreign Service Officers. To get into the service, you go through a year or more long, extremely rigorous series of written and oral exams language tests, and security clearances. And once you're in, you move up through the ranks in the service, which work a little bit like the ones in the armed forces, and which translate into military ranks, so that state and the guys with the guns can figure out who's who when they're working together. And within that service, there are five career tracks. Political, diplomatic, economic, consular, and management. And while ambassadors often enough come from other kinds of political life, Most everyone else who works at our embassies and consulates around the world, except for security and service staff, is a professional foreign service officer, a member of this vast, well-trained apparatus that extends into every one of the far reaches of the globe. And despite the fascination we have with spies, political foreign service officers are the ones who tell us the majority of what we know about the rest of the world. These are men and women who spend their time examining the political situations, the parties, the resistance movements, the important figures, even the literature and music and culture of other countries, and who send that information back to Foggy Bottom in D.C. in millions and millions of cables. If the president's nervous about Brexit back in 2016, and he wants to know how the average Devonshire farmer feels about the European Union... When he turns to his Secretary of State, the information that he'll get is coming from some officer who looked into it at a consulate outside of London and who cabled it in. While all the other kinds of officers have some information-gathering role to play, too, they're the ones that fulfill the sort of implementing and continuing services job in an analogous way to the folks who work in the bureaucracy at the Social Security Administration or the Department of Education here at home. Diplomatic officers interface with the diplomatic core of the country they're in, representing the United States and its policies. Coming back to Brexit, if Obama wanted the European Union to start lobbying the British to stay in, these are the folks that would have reached out to the assistance to the French or German or Swedish foreign ministers, or maybe made some sort of low-key speeches about the U.S.'s hopes for the European Union. Economic officers, you can probably figure out, and management officers take care of operations at the embassies. While consular officers, like a friend I have right now in Honduras, both take care of Americans abroad from lost passports through the kidnappings, and they also issue or deny visas to people looking to come to the U.S. Basically, if the United States is going to do something abroad, or anybody else is going to try to interact with the U.S. from the lowest to the highest level, they're going to do it with a member of the State Department. And more than that, most likely with a Foreign Service officer, a member of this elite corps of, yes, bureaucrats who have spent their entire lives studying and serving in international relations and America's interests on the world stage. Now, in one sense, it's easy to see why having a large and well-funded State Department is a good thing and why downsizing it might not be. The world is a big place and we're the biggest player in it and we just logistically need a whole lot of people out there or else when the president asks about the Devonshire Farmer or wants to start pushing the European Union, He's going to turn to the Secretary of State, and that guy is going to shrug. But there are other and subtler ways that having a streamlined State Department is bad for the U.S. I'm finishing up David Halberstam's The Best and the Brightest right now, which is a pretty seminal work on Vietnam that explores how the very smartest men from the very best university and corporate jobs came into the Kennedy administration, stayed on with LBJ, and steered us unerringly into war. And while I'm obviously going to get way deeper into this when I finally turn to Vietnam in the longer shows, an interesting dynamic grows up during that period, which depended on a weak State Department. Now this falls into two parts, and the first is applicable pretty much all of the time. And that's that having a strong Secretary of State who has his own ideas about US foreign policy helps to isolate that policy from the President and from the democratic process. Now I know that sounds bad, isolating anything from the people. But whereas the great mass of Americans tends to know something about what's going on in the U.S., and therefore should and does have a huge influence through voting on domestic policy, Americans in general don't know much about the rest of the world. And given that the U.S. does important stuff with literally every country around, I'm not sure that they could be expected to know enough about it. We can see this dynamic playing out right now, where domestic fears about Islam have led the president to damage relations with pretty much every Muslim-majority country, even when, if there was ever a cause for a Muslim ban or some variation thereof, it could probably have been better and finer-tuned by men and women who had spent their lives studying the Muslim world, versus Steve Bannon and a couple other people at the White House. In the run-up to Vietnam, the domestic concern in the U.S. was communism and China. I'm going to try to be brief here. So, for a variety of reasons I won't get into right now, as the old Chinese imperial regime was collapsing, and the quote-unquote nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek were setting up a government, and then fighting the Japanese during World War II, the American public had the impression, reinforced by pro-China guys like Henry Luce, who used to run Time Magazine, that the average Chinese peasant loved the United States, and was just waiting for us to help Chiang to deliver them democracy, and, no joke here, Christianity. In that same period, foreign service officers living and working in China, guys who had grown up there and spoke the language, they knew that in fact the average Chinese peasant didn't know anything about the U.S., that the average peasant hated the corrupt and repressive Chiang regime, and that if he or she had any political feeling at all, it was probably support for the communist insurgency under Mao and the rest. While people back at home were all for sending Chiang money and guns for as long as possible, money and guns that his troops immediately lost to Mao's troops, foreign service officers in country were advising that Chiang's cause was totally hopeless, that the communists enjoyed real popular support, and that we should get neutral as fast as possible because we'd be dealing with the communists before too long. After World War II ended, and I'm simplifying here, Truman couldn't be seen to be soft on communism, and the advice of those foreign service officers went unheeded. We continued to support Chiang Kai-shek, totally alienating the communist movement, and before long, Chiang's nationalists retreated to Taiwan and left the mainland to Mao and the Maoists, who were, at that point, understandably, very much anti-American. The quote-unquote fall of China gave rise to the red-baiting and communist hunting of Senator Joseph McCarthy, and the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations ended up investigating and ruining the careers of pretty much every foreign service officer who had stood up to the official U.S. foreign policy, and told the truth about what was going on in China to their superiors at state. These guys were accused of being communist sympathizers and railroaded out of the service. And the effect of that was, in service of domestic political considerations, to kick out all of the smartest and most independent officers from the Far East part of the Foreign Service. It also made clear to the ones who were left that they'd be better off going along and getting along than trying to speak truth to power in the future. All of which leads us to the second part of why having a weak State Department is bad for the United States in general, something that applies exclusively, or at least applies much more, in situations in which the armed forces are also involved. So let me set the scene, again, I hope, briefly. It's the early 1960s. John Fitzgerald Kennedy has just become president, and in what was at that time a little-noticed corner of the globe, the U.S. was providing support for a quote-unquote nationalist regime in Saigon the capital of South Vietnam, headed by No Dinh Diem. That Saigon regime was fighting against a communist insurgency that was receiving nominal support from Ho Chi Minh's government in Hanoi, the capital of North Vietnam. And the thing that was striking about this situation was that it was very much like what we'd had going on in China a decade before. Diem ran a corrupt and totally ineffective government, not at all beloved of the people, which was waging a corrupt, repressive, and ineffective war against a communist insurgency that, when a peasant bothered or was bothered to think about it, probably enjoyed his or her sympathies. At the same time, while the American public didn't have much or any idea of what was going on in Indochina, the Democratic administration was just as afraid of being seen as soft on communism as Truman had been, in part because of McCarthy and everything else that had happened after we lost China. And just as in China, journalists and low-level foreign service officers on the ground in Vietnam could see even in 1960 that things were going a certain way, and that the Saigon regime was going to end up just like Chiang Kai-shek's boys had done. But the ambassador at the time, a man named Frederick Nolting, in the interest of serving the president, was responding more to domestic politics in the U.S. than to Vietnamese ones. And the higher-level FSOs in the country— the ones who had survived the purges in the Foreign Service after China went communist, they learned their lesson about speaking up pretty well. So word wasn't filtering up to the then Secretary of State Dean Rusk to JFK that stuff wasn't rosy in Saigon. Instead, pressure was coming down from Secretary of State Rusk and from Nolting to generate good news. And state generated that good news. Now, even with all of those considerations in place, Those low-level officers and higher-placed doubters within the bureaucracy probably could have eventually fought it out and got the right information to the president. But there was one very important obstacle, and that was the MACV, Military Assistance Command Vietnam. MACV was sort of the military parallel to the diplomatic corps in country, and it controlled, well, our military assistance, the cash and arms and training we provided to Diem's Army of the Republic of Vietnam, or the ARVN along with the American advisors that were attached to particular Arvin units. Now, to Vietnam experts, I know that MAG, M-A-A-G, or the Military Assistance Advisory Group, predated MACV, which was only formed in 1962, and that MACV eventually absorbed the MAG, but let's just stick with one name for the sake of simplicity right now. So in the same way that the embassy staff interacted with its counterparts in South Vietnam, from village chiefs up through to Diem, MACV made contact with the Arvin from enlisted men all the way up to MACV's chief, General Harkins, chatting with the Arvin's top brass and with Diem. And the thing about the military is that it also constitutes, just like state, an intelligence gathering operation. All those guys in the field with the Arvin, up through Harkins with Diem, they were all producing their own reports, which went up through Max Taylor, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, then to Bob McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, and finally on to the president. And the military, unfortunately sometimes even for itself, is much better at producing the right intelligence than state is. You'd have to read Halberstam to get the full rundown on this business, because obviously I haven't spent a lot of time in uniform, but it appears that while the State Department's failure to allow good intel to make it out of Vietnam was a regional lapse that had a regional cause in the fall of China, the military as a rule produced the intelligence that its commanders wanted and it took a singularly independent and rebellious kind of officer to buck that trend. Lieutenant Colonel John Paul Vann was one such man, the subject of Neil Sheehan's A Bright Shining Lie, and they ran that dude right out of Saigon and right out of the army for speaking up. And the thing is that as the 1960s rolled on, state began producing much better, more pessimistic intelligence, stuff that told the truth. That our man in saigon was no good and that we were losing the war and that there might be no way to win it but even as states intelligence got better first jfk and then lbj enlarged our military commitment which made the MACV larger which meant that by the mid-60s the military was producing thousands of times more memos and statistics and field reports than the diplomatic staff in vietnam could hope to come up with so when johnson was beginning to consider putting tens of thousands of american boots on the ground On the one side, you had honest but relatively sparse reporting from state saying that it wouldn't do any good to put one more or a million more Americans in country. And on the other side, you had this entire military machine saying that if we put men into the Delta, they'd all be home by Christmas. And that's literal. General Harkins had a great fondness for the quote-unquote home-by-Christmas line. It's at that kind of juncture that you most want a strong Secretary of State. Because the military, as it did in Vietnam, will say, Look, Our guys are out in the rice paddies, actually seeing this war fought. They're not in offices in Saigon playing politics. And at that point, you have to have a secretary who can stand up to the Joint Chiefs and to defense and defend the intelligence that his Foreign Service officers are producing. And unfortunately, at that moment, we had Dean Rusk, a man who believed in the primacy of the military, where both state and the armed forces were involved. Rusk worked to suppress the opinions of his own men and women and, well, In very short, that's what led us to bombing the North and then committing, by 1968, hundreds of thousands of soldiers to a war that the Foreign Service had been saying could not be won by any means as far back as 1960. You need a strong, well-staffed State Department because you need good intelligence to run foreign policy, and even very small, out-of-the-way states can suddenly loom large for us. You need State especially, because unlike the military and the intelligence agencies, State has no particular dog in the race. Military intelligence is, as a rule, going to tell you that military force is the answer, and covert intelligence that covert operations are the way to go. State, because of its very size and because the men and women who make the recommendations aren't well exposed to the public, tends to give honest, varied assessments that correspond more to the situation at hand than to a vested interest in one or another kind of action. And you need a strong secretary so that he or she can defend the views of the department in the face of those other, more targeted opinions. So how does that apply today, and to Rex Tillerson over there at the State Department? Well the one good thing is that Tillerson isn't exactly a weak secretary. He doesn't seem to have any agenda of his own, which is pretty strange for what's often recognized as the second most powerful and important position in the executive branch. Especially when you've got a president like Trump, who didn't come in with much foreign policy interest or experience, what you want is a secretary who's going to be proactive in promoting American interests abroad. So that's weird. But in one very important arena, Tillerson has stood up for the opinions and intelligence of his men on the ground. And that's on Iran. The Iran deal, the one that limits their nuclear program, it's working out alright so far. And even if we can agree that not every tenet is being followed, either on the Iranian or on our side, torching that deal unilaterally would allow Tehran to restart its weapons program without putting the previous sanctions regime back in place. Letting the deal go now would give the Iranians something while netting us literally nothing, which is exactly the way that Donald Trump disingenuously attacked the deal as Obama was putting it together. Now, despite that, Donald Trump has directed Rex Tillerson every time that the treaty has come up for approval, since it has to be reapproved by the executive every three months, to invent a reason, or some reasons, to renege on our side of the deal. He's trying to give away something for nothing. And Tillerson, to his credit, has pushed back and refused to invent those reasons, which I think is probably in part due to his own experience in the Middle East, and in part due to the expert advice of the men and women who work the Middle East desk, and who have laid out for him all of the ways in which torpedoing that deal would be a pointless disaster. So, all in all, Rex Tillerson, not exactly a weak secretary, and that's good. But Tillerson has for months been quietly leaking that he only wants to stay on for a year. And at that point, if he should resign, Donald Trump gets to pick his replacement. And having been burned by strong cabinet heads in Rex Tillerson and in Jeff Sessions, I can't imagine that he'll be choosing a strong-willed, independent-minded new Secretary of State. So Tillerson's downsizing and streamlining of the department, especially at the top, where he's centered operations on himself and cut senior officers out of the process, once he's gone, it's going to be a mess over there, right at the moment when the new secretary and the U.S. as a whole will most need a strong, outspoken, professional body of officers over at Foggy Bottom. Because as I've said, most especially in the Abolish the Army and American Legion's short episodes, the U.S. has a really big hammer. And when you've got a really big hammer, especially one that's got its own intelligence apparatus that's always telling you that it doesn't matter if you're looking at a nail or a screw or an incredibly delicate political situation, a hammer will work, it becomes very hard for a president who's not getting any conflicting advice not to use that hammer. And we're looking at those serious situations. We've got troops on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan, which, to reiterate from all my talks with Rob are the two countries that border Iran on the east and the west. We've got advisors in Syria. We're helping the Saudis to fight an insurgency in Yemen, and that sounds familiar. And we're constantly, constantly threatening some kind of conflict with Iran itself. And that, all of that, is taking place in just one limited part of the Middle East. The United States is a very big dude in a very small bar. And while there are a couple of other big guys in there that it understands, Most of the bar is filled with hundreds of Lilliputian-looking other folks, ones that we do not understand very well, and to whom a hammer is rarely well applied. The State Department is the one tool that we have that reaches out to all those little guys, and helps us to understand and to move them, without the hammer, when we can, and to leave them alone when we can't. Getting rid of or streamlining the State Department isn't going to make those little dudes more amenable to the hammer, It just makes us more likely to try to use it where it won't work, just like we did in the 1960s. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.